0: Welcome to the St. Richard's Episcopal Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Reverend Cameron Nations. For more information, please visit strichards.org. So I have to tell y'all, I was very excited about preaching this Sunday After having multiple weeks, like y'all who've been uh, attending over the last month or so will know that the gospel readings have not exactly been easy, okay? I've had to preach on explaining Jesus saying, yeah, you've got to be prepared to like hate your father and mother uh, to follow me. We had to talk about that, you know? And so um, last week, it was Mother Kelly's week to preach, and I was so encouraged because she had these two beautiful parables the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And I got really excited because you know what follows those two parables like immediately? The parable of the prodigal son. And so I'm so excited today that the lectionary skipped over that entirely (laughs) to give me what is often referred to as one of the hardest parables to understand that Jesus taught. So here we are, okay? So here we are. I was excited to preach the parable of the prodigal son. We don't even have that. I don't know why it skips over it. It's wonderful, but okay. So we don't have that. Um, So so let's talk about today's parable because it is confusing. And in fact, it is so confusing to interpret that some biblical commentators have even surmised that Luke himself didn't really understand it, which is why it's so confusing to us today, that his confusion kind of gets communicated to us via the gospel somehow. And I don't know about that necessarily, but, you know, it's as good a, a... hypothesis as any Um, and so what I want to do today is uh, to do my best to walk us through the parable this is the only way I really know how to take this one to walk us through the parable and discuss some possible ways of approaching it right because that's the beautiful thing about parables is actually they're supposed to spark our thought and imagination they're supposed to invite our questions and and sort of lead us deeper into exploring the text and I will tell you with a parable like today's you've got to do some exploring okay Because, of course, what makes this parable so challenging is that in it, Jesus seems to hold up this dishonest steward, right? The the dishonesty, this person who sort of defrauded his employer um, as as virtuous, okay? Right? This, This is tricky. This is tricky for us. Why would Jesus do this, hold up this behavior as virtuous? In fact, he goes so far as to basically instruct his own disciples to follow this example of the parable. Make for your friends by means of dishonest wealth, or make make for yourself friends by means of dishonest wealth. Like, that doesn't sound very Jesus-y, you know? I don't know, like, that's kind of been our criteria as we had those other passages, too. Like, well, goodness, this, uh, this doesn't sound very Prince of peace to me, you know? Um, and so, so how do we understand this, okay? Well, that's what I hope will come away with some ways to approach this parable today. But I will say this at the outset, that regardless of how confusing this parable might be to interpret, how many different angles we can take or ways into it we can take, what we do know for sure is this, okay, is that today's parable deals with a theme that we've seen uh, come up again and again over the last month and will come up in a big way for us next week. Because, by the way, Okay, so I was looking forward to the prodigal son. I don't get that. We have this hard parable today. Next week, it's uh, the rich man and Lazarus, okay, which if any of y'all know is like, it's like a gut punch of a teaching, okay? So we're just continuing on with it. But anyway, over uh, the next couple of weeks, these, these parables, these stories that Jesus tells, uh, deals, they deal with a theme that we've seen over and over again in Luke's gospel, which is the dangers of money and our pursuit of it. What that can do, and and how that can shift and change the way that we view the world, and particularly other people in it, okay? As I mentioned in an earlier sermon a few weeks ago, Jesus' view of money is a bit like the legendary uh, Texas football coach Darrell Royal's axiom about throwing the ball. Do y'all remember this, that when you throw the football, three things can happen and two of them are bad, you know? Um, That's kind of like how Jesus views money. When money is involved, a bunch of things can happen, and most of them are bad, right? Most of them are pitfalls that we have to be aware of. They're dangers that we need to try to avoid. Um, And so let's take a look at today's parable. Let's take a look at this. So in this story, Jesus tells of a steward, uh, this wealth manager essentially, who oversees this, uh, this master's estate, this lord's estate. Uh, This wealth manager finds out that he's on the chopping block due to some accusations, and here's the first place actually where um, our interpretation has to do a a little bit of work, because we're not really told whether or not this accusation is true. It ends up being true in the end, ironically, but we don't actually know if the accusation levied against the steward is true, that he's been mismanaging funds. Okay, um, and, and if we assume that it is true, that might lead us to a different interpretation than if we assume that it's a false accusation. Okay? There's also another matter right off the bat, which is that some commentators talk about how the steward may have been a slave. Some commentators say he might not have been. That, too, impacts the way that we read this parable and the power dynamics that are at work here. But anyway, the parable goes like this. right, He's accused of mismanaging the wealth, and um, he begins to panic because his livelihood is at stake. And he says, I'm not strong enough to get to dig, he says, and I'm too proud to beg. So I've got I've to come up with something, right? I have to come up with something. So he hatches a plan. The wealth manager decides that his plan is going to be to ingratiate himself to those who owe his boss money hoping that they will then support him after he gets fired I mean, this is kind of the this basically the plan he comes up with so the manager calls those indebted to his um, to his master literally Lord okay which is another thing that complicates our interpretation of this parable um, and he says to these people who are indebted uh, hey you know hand me your bill real quick let me see that how, how much do you owe and one guy says a hundred jugs of olive oil which is actually a whole lot. That's probably about like 900 gallons of olive oil. Or something. So these are big, this is industrial, commercial sized orders of things, okay? And so he said, I've got 100 jugs of olive oil. Oh, okay, the manager says, make that 50, all right? Tears off the, I mean, I assume they had papyrus notepads. I don't know how he's doing this, but you know, <laughs> um, and he hands it back to him and, and there it is, okay? Uh, and so presumably that guy's like, all right, sweet, you know, and he walks away, his, his debt's been cut in half. Then the manager turns to a, the, another guy and says, well, how much do you owe? And he says, well, I've got, I owe a hundred containers of wheat, which is like a thousand bushels of wheat. Again, like a lot of lot of wheat, okay. And the manager says, okay, well, fine, let's take your bill, and we're going to make that 80 containers a week, you know, and he sends him off, all right. Um, Now, here's another point at which the interpretation of this passage uh, or this parable gets a little tricky. Some scholars argue that the reduced bill uh, that the steward offers the debtors would have been the steward's cut off the top. So that's like the money that the steward would have made uh, in that transaction. And if if that's true, then that changes our reading of the parable a little bit because it means that the steward is sacrificing his own profit— to do this, right, which is a little different dynamic than other interpretation or uh, you know, other interpretations. Um, but here's the thing about this. We really don't know this for sure. It doesn't say that, and if you notice, uh, it, the amounts are not the same percentage. He, he lops off half of one guy's bill and only 20% of the other one, so eh, you know? I don't, I don't know if we can say that for sure, that that's what he was doing. And there's also an additional layer to this, which is the complicated historical context around charging interest on loans anyway, especially in Judaism. This is really important to understand, given that it's Jesus who's telling this parable, and uh, the audience around him, which we'll get to a little bit later, uh, they are all, well, I don't know if they're all Jews, but predominantly other Jewish people who are listening to this parable. And we need to remember that the scriptures are actually pretty clear about this, that charging interest on pretty much everything, especially charging high interest rates that will keep someone trapped in a cycle of debt, is considered sinful. It's sin to do that. Um, it's actually forbidden in the law. We call that sin usury, okay? And it's it's not a thing that you were supposed to do. And so how this context would impact the hearer's understanding of what is happening here is also in the mix, and we we aren't, you know, uh, and and um, impacts our interpretation. Okay, so either way, already we've seen it's complicated. It's complicated. Okay, so he does this. He the the steward slashes these people's bills, and then um, somehow uh, the boss uh, finds out about this. He finds out, and we would presume when he finds out, he'd be pretty mad. Right. I mean, if I was him, I'd be kind of mad. I'd be like, well, "What are you doing? Not, how can you be just slashing arbitrarily? It seems slashing what people owe to me. You know, what is this? What are you doing?" But that's not what happens, is it? You know, in typical parable fashion, because parables are always full of surprises. Um, the 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 Lord, the steward, or the um, the the Lord, of, uh, the boss guy, finds out and. It's not clear whether or not he's mad, actually, because what he says after that is he praises the steward for the steward's shrewdness. Now again, what we make of this is challenging because we don't know the tone in which he said this. He could have been real mad, okay? And still been like, ha, you were so, you know, you were so shrewd to have done this. You know, look at you. <laughs> look at you go. It could have been one of kind of mutual admiration. Like this guy could have been pretty crooked. And he could have been like, oh, man, that was that's a that was a slick move what you just did. You know, I see what you did there. You know, we don't know. We don't know in what sense this is intended. Okay? Um, all right. But the man is praised for his wisdom. The, the, the steward is praised for his wisdom. So again, one possibility here is that the Lord is being ironic. We don't know. But regardless, the steward has weakened the Lord's position relative to those indebted to him. Um, but we don't Know exactly what the reaction is. Okay. Now, what's even more curious, though, about this part in the parable is that the voice of the Lord in the parable. Okay, if you notice this when you look at the text, the voice of the Lord in the parable starts to all of a sudden blend with Jesus's voice in a weird way. Did you did you notice that? So there's like a semicolon in. Our Bible, of course, they didn't have semicolons as part of the reason I'd never want to be a biblical translator. Hardest job ever. There's no punctuation and no capitalization. You're just having to figure it out. Okay, But the voice of the Lord in the parable starts to blend with Jesus' voice uh, when Jesus starts to say, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Now the children of light seems to be a pretty clear reference to the followers of Jesus, I guess, maybe is it? I don't know. It's part of the que- question we have to ask about this parable. And he goes on and he says, "And I tell you, make friends." Like this is a command. "Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes." Was well, that Jesus commanding us to make friends with our dishonest wealth? Is that the Lord and the parable are they the same? Does it matter? Is it different? like this is what I'm saying. This gets really tricky. So, it's complicated. I should have just titled the sermon that, right? This is complicated. But it gets worse, okay? In addition to the perplexing moral trajectory of this narrative that we find ourselves with today, there are some interesting translation decisions that color our interpretation as well. So for one, the word translated here as shrewdness, okay? We've got that word, it appears twice here. Um, It's a pretty common word elsewhere in the New Testament that's translated more plainly as prudence or wisdom, not shrewdness. Now, to us, shrewdness has certain connotations, doesn't it? Like to be shrewd is a little little shifty, you know, it's a little, I don't know, it's a little tricky being shrewd. Uh, But being wise or prudent is actually virtuous, right? Like we, we like that. We think being wise and prudent is a good thing. And so if we translate it that way, the master praised him for his prudence or, you know, for the children of this age are wiser in dealing with their own generation, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it changes the sense. It makes it more positive, in a sense, as Jesus is praising this behavior. just seems less suspect in some way, right? Now there's another translation thing going on here, which is the NRSV's translation of uh, what the King James renders as mammon. Okay, we're all familiar, right, with mammon. I love that. I love mammon. It's a good word that we don't use enough, I think. Um, but the NRSV translates that as dishonest wealth, dishonest wealth. Okay? And that's also somewhat curious and possibly even misleading uh, because a more literal translation of that, which works just fine, is unrighteous wealth. Unrighteous wealth instead of dishonest wealth. Well, that also sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? Because unrighteous wealth sounds like it's contrasted with heavenly riches. Unrighteous, righteous, earthly, worldly, heavenly. I mean, these are contrasts that Jesus has been setting up for us all across the Gospel of Luke. And we'll continue to next week. Spoiler alert. and if we translate it as unrighteous, it does make the end of this passage maybe make more sense, right? Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? I don't know, I mean that kind of, but okay. So. This is very confusing. Parable, very confusing. Lots of different ways into it, lots of different ways to explore it, lots of different ways to read it and seek to understand it. But then we come to the end of the parable in verse chapter 13. And regardless of how cloudy our vision is up to that point, it gets real clear real fast, beginning at verse 13. Jesus says this, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, God and money, God and mammon. You cannot do it. So this is kind of how I approach this parable, is starting there, because the rest of it, very unclear. But that, that seems pretty clear to me, Right? And money does have a tendency to drive our moral calculus, doesn't it? We talked about this recently with uh, the verse from Hebrews about welcoming the stranger among us, that um, sometimes we can assign monetary value, not just to things, objects, whatever, but also to people, to people. And it can sway our moral calculus. But as Christians, we all know that we are called to serve God, not our own greed. And so it is possible here that Jesus is basically saying in this parable, look, guys, y'all are stuck in a world and in a system in which your choices and the way that you view other people will be dictated in some way by dollar signs, even when you don't want them to be. Don't do that. Resist that temptation. Instead, it is better to give away this unrighteous wealth that we accumulate here on earth. It's better to give it away for the good of the kingdom of heaven and build relationships with those around you than it is to hoard it, to keep it, and to extort others to get more of it. That could be what Jesus is saying here. In fact, there is an inversion happening here in this passage that's common throughout Luke's gospel where the more powerful and wealthy person of the story suddenly becomes dependent upon the grace and charity of those who are, at least on earth, below them in station, right? In this way, hierarchies and relationships get really redefined and reshuffled. What was a vertical structure of power, the guy with all the money, the guy who managed the guy's money, and then everybody who owed that guy money, gets totally rewritten and flattened, right? It becomes a horizontal relationship, or a horizontal structure, rather, of relationship and friendship. Now we can talk about how money motivates friendship and goodwill too. I mean, this is what I'm saying. It's complicated, but that is a dynamic that's happening here. And lastly, I think it's important that we not forget the audience of this parable, which is my next grievance. Well, I'm on the the lectionary grievance train today. My next grievance about it um, didn't just like steamroll through the prodigal son. But also, it leaves out a couple of really important verses today, which are verses 14 and 15, which is who's actually listening to Jesus tell the story. And here's what it tells us. In verse 14, Luke says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed Jesus. Okay, So he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. I think that's actually a pretty important context when we think about the parable here. Because the point of this parable may not even be for us to find a moral exemplar in it at all, anywhere, actually. But rather, perhaps, it's to startle us because there isn't really one. Now, you see, we have to remember and be very careful. Anytime we hear the word Pharisee, we have a very pernicious tendency to supply a synonym in there. We have a very pernicious tendency to hear the word Pharisee and hear hypocrite, right? Ah, hypocrites. It's the hypocrites. So that's fine, right? It's the Pharisees. They're all just lovers of money. It's what it says here, right? But we have to resist that at all costs. One, because it's an unhelpful stereotype. But two... Uh, because the Pharisees were like a dominant force in Judaism. Jesus was probably a Pharisee. I've talked about this before. He went to synagogue. That was a, a Pharisee thing to do. Pharisees did the synagogue thing, okay? Um, they were the everyman's church to the more aristocratic Sadducees. And uh, the Pharisees um, were good church going people, they were your average workaday, good synagogue going Jew, right? And so whenever we hear Jesus talk about the Pharisees, I think as modern readers, we need to be very careful not to supply hypocrite in there, but to hear ourselves in the words of Scripture. Because if Pharisees were good church-going people, that means that the Pharisees were like you and like me. right? So before we so easily dismiss what Jesus has to say here as being meant for someone else, who lived way a long time ago, right? Conveniently, we don't have to worry too much about that. I think we actually need to hear these words as spoken to us directly. Us as lovers of money. Us who justify ourselves in the sight of others. Us whose hearts God knows. Us whose prizes and possessions can divert us and be an abomination in the sight of God. You see, because the point of the parable might very well be to rile up, good church-going people, like you and me. To drive home the point that God should be the guiding principle in our lives, not the pursuit of wealth, not our love of money, because our love of money can lead us to make all kinds of decisions. And as Coach Royal might remind us, a lot of them are bad, right? A lot of them can go really wrong. At best, it's an incomplete pass, right? Um, Could be a turnover on downs. We don't know what that could look like, right? Now, it says, as I mentioned earlier, that charges were brought against the steward, that he was squandering his master's wealth. We don't know if those charges were, you know, legitimate or whether they, I mean, in the end, they become legitimate. We don't know whether they were or not. Um, But regardless, the mere accusation in this parable is enough. The mere accusation of a threat to the Lord's wealth is enough to put in jeopardy and warrant the dismissal of this steward, right? Then it's a love of money and a care of money that actually leads the steward to dishonestly manage the master's wealth, to fulfill the thing that he was accused of, right? So whether the accusation was true or not to, to begin with, as I said, it's true in the end. And I think this parable feels a little bit off to us, makes us a little uncomfortable because it is Jesus providing us a glimpse, not of the world that is to come, but of the world when we do not live with God in our minds and on our hearts. I think that's one way of looking at this. To put it another way, Jesus is sort of showing us a picture of the world as we know it, where we want to save our own skin. And in the Gospels, we are very used to hearing Jesus speak of a different world, of a world like we heard about last week when Mother Kelly got to preach on those fun parables. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) A world where a shepherd would forsake 99 sheep to go after the one, which I'll tell you is bad economic sense. Right? That's bad. That's bad economic sense. But that's the shepherd that you and I follow, the good shepherd. You know? We're used to hearing about that world, the world of the parable of the prodigal son, where the father would, that we didn't get to hear about again, uh, the one where the father would open up his arms and receive his son who had squandered everything, right? Receive him back home. That's the world that we're used to Jesus talking about, not a world like we hear about in this parable that looks so darn familiar to us. This parable and some of the teachings that follow us, I think, or follow it. Well, they follow us, too. That may have been been right, what I just said. This parable and some of the teachings that follow it, including the one we'll look at next week, call us to account, I think, for our own greed. They call us to account for the times when we see dollar signs where we should see the children of God. And so to land the plane, because we got to, we've got to, I'll leave you with this the interpretation of this parable is not straightforward. And I can't preach a straightforward interpretation to you because I don't have one. I think there's a lot of valid ways of looking at this. And so while the interpretation of this parable may not be straightforward, in the end, Jesus is clear. In the end, Jesus is clear that we can only serve one Lord. One Lord. And so whether or not we understand the parable, there's a clear question before us. What Lord do we choose? What Lord do we choose? Amen. Thank you for tuning in. For service times or more information on St. Richard's, please visit strichards.org.